Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. I'm privileged to have with me today my colleague and new dear friend, Dr. Yahan Kamsazadeh. We're going to be talking about all things psychedelic. For those of you who are new to psychedelics, we're going to start with an easy one. Yahan, what can people expect from a psychedelic experience? Tell us some of the things they can expect, what they can look forward to, and what they might be dealing with. Yeah, I think they can expect the unexpected. And uh, that's quite a wide range of things. And for most people, the unexpected brings up anxiety. For most people, the unknown, even in the future and things that they can't control, there's a fear response. And so at the beginning, that's what we're working with. I think 90% of people that come into a psychedelic session that's journeyed, there's some level of anxiety. Um, I then normally get people into 25-minute meditation after taking the medicine and a chance to dissipate. But there are uh, the common trait that Terrence McKenna, the great psychedelic philosopher, so that all psychedelics have in common is that they're boundary dissolving. They dissolve the boundaries between the parts of ourselves, us and other people, the environment, the planet, us and the divine. And that can be really confusing. And, you know, if I'm looking at the large scale of, say, divinity, you know, or Carl Jung's work of the collective unconscious, the universe is made of a very large imagination that's pretty infinite, just, just as our own psyche is. And so pretty much anything can happen. The range could be meeting an archetypal deities, feeling what the, the universe having repressed trauma come up, anger, rage, a uh, sense of wholeness, aliveness, uh, sexual energy, disorientation. And so even working with the psilocybin mushroom, for example, it's almost different every time, which means you can keep growing almost every time. But it's, it'd be pretty impossible to know ahead of time what's going to happen. So you have to come in ready to hold whatever may come up. Now, people come in... And they're having some anticipatory anxiety. And when the medicine begins to take effect and they're having these feelings, how long typically are they in this anxious state before they settle down? Now, that's one reason where I found it's great to go right into like a 25-minute meditation so people connect with their body and their breath. And about 100% of the time I have seen after this 25-minute meditation, people are calm and centered. So that's something I found to help buffer that anxiety. But I like the metaphor of um, the onset of psychedelics to an airplane taking off. Generally, when an airplane takes off, there's some turbulence on the way up. It's normal. It happens almost every time. And that's what happens with the onset of most psychedelics. There could be butterflies in the stomach. The system is reorganizing. It's trying to make sense of the differences. There's hot, cold, and flashes, difference in sights. And so it can be a little confusing. Generally, for like 15 to 20 minutes, it can be something that's very uncomfortable. Again, just like an airplane going up. But most of the time, once you reach altitude, you can coast. Now, do most of the people that come to you because they have a specific agenda, such as they're dealing with with anxiety or depression or some emotional issue? Or do most of them come because they want to explore and expand? Or do you get a wide variety? And what are the differences in experience, if any, amongst these two subject groups? 
Sure. About 90% of people come because they're in some level of pain or challenge. 70-ish or more percent is depression. Um, depression is the largest epidemic in terms of disability worldwide, says a, a World Health Organization. If I bring in anxiety along with the depression and all odd times they go together, that's about 90% of my clients. And so many reasons for depression, but they can also include PTSD. So something awful that happened in their past. And just a tidbit on depression, what I've seen at the core of depression is I don't like myself. So it has to do with somebody's identity feeling not good enough. And if you're somebody that you don't like being, you're inherently depressed. So we're generally working on that. About 10% of people come in just for self-growth and spiritual experience and performance enhancement. That being said, a lot of the people that come in initially for pain, addiction, depression, uh, low self-esteem, and so on, tend to have incredible results. I mean, half the time, it's life-changing in the journey. Um, but about 90% of the time, massive improvement. And then they keep coming back for the spiritual growth and uh, the expansion of their life and who they are. So they start off because of pain, but they keep coming back because of the growth. Yahan, some of us have started differentiating between two types of psychedelic experiences with guides. One type being what we're calling psycholytic and one type being what we're calling psychedelic. With the psycholytic, it's typically a low dose or a lower dose, which allows for dialogue between the client and the guide, whereas psychedelic is a higher dose where the client typically wears blindfolds and they're inside themselves for most of the journey. Do you find these two descriptions and these two dosages helpful in your work? They are, and I think they have... Um different degrees of value. So if I may speculate a little bit, if we're using different kinds of psychedelics and is, you know, MDMA will be more used for moving forward with um, federal legalization, you know, in late 2024, it's great for this psychoanalytic. It's very relational, very communicative. You get people MDMA, they want to talk a lot and the heart is opened, right? And so that creates the psychoanalytic approach along with good combination of the MDMA a good platform for a client-therapist relationship. It's very relational, they're very open, and this helps set a great sense of safety, right? Underlying so much of this therapeutic work unconsciously is attachment work, right? The, the, the things that happen with a parent. And so they're attached to another human feeling safe and good that opens their heart and helps them feel safer in the world and a deeper sense of belonging. So that's the good working on this more like personal realm. What studies have found and what I've seen, though, is that there's a greater correlation of happiness happening to do with higher doses, especially if I'm using psilocybin. I tend to start people with four grams. And my orientation is you're having a direct dialogue with nature or the universe or the mushroom, and it knows a lot more than we do. And so I tell my clients, you know, so in the beginning, we might have an hour and a half, two hours where... We're working with a lower dose and we're talking, we're doing a lot of therapy, getting to know each other, getting to the stage. And about two hours in, I ask them to put the eye mask in. We've created a sense of safety. They feel good dropping in, increase the dose a little bit. And now they're communing with nature and they're going to learn a lot more and have a, have a lot more healing with this dialogue with nature than they will with any human. That's what I found in my own life. 
And so in that case, I don't want to get in the way of this dialogue with divinity. And so I'm there next to them, uh, checking in every 15 minutes, taking notes. I'm there if any trauma erupts or they want to come out and process. And then I encourage them to go back in. They have a few hour window to be in this very special experience. And then so much of the more psychoanalytic, you know, therapeutic parts comes in at the end of that day and in follow-up sessions during integration. Now, let's talk about specific dosages. If we're talking about the conversational with the guide dose in the early stages, and we're talking about psilocybin, are you talking about roughly three or four grams? You know, so I think a good psychoanalytic dose, if you're wanting to have more of a dialogue uh, up to two, you know, you want the person to be present in here. If I'm doing a deeper dive, I tend to start at four grams, you know, so it's more of a visionary world that opens up in, um, in the Huberman podcasts, which a lot of people listen to, the neuroscientists at Stanford recently had an episode on psilocybin and he said they have found in the clinical studies that it's much more effective with the eye mask on. You know, and so, but a lot of clients in the beginning aren't ready. They're too scared to go inside and they're developing a relationship with you. And so it's a very organic process that you can't rush. I can tell them over and over, hey, let's put the eye mask on. And it's all about the attunement of like, let's not push and meet them where they are. So some people, they might not put the eye mask on the entire first journey. You're still building a relational platform. For some people, they've never really gone to therapy and they're getting their story out for the first time. They just want to sit there and share their biography. And then that's what you're doing. But that does set the stage up for later journeys where they've processed your life. They're heard by somebody else. You know, they feel, they feel seen and safe. And then they're later ready to surrender even deeper and go inside. Now, with psilocybin, might you add an additional dose after the hour and a half? Absolutely. I generally add, we go through two rounds of doses. You know, one to, so it's not an abrupt entry to set the stage. And another to take them deeper and elongate the session. You know, we try to keep sessions to about six hours. Psilocybin lasts four hours. So one dose in, you know, and then about another 90 minutes to two hours, another dose. And if the first dose was four grams, an hour and a half into it, what would the second dose be? Probably another two grams if I'm just focusing on a deep dive. You know, if I want something like an analytic session, I'll probably be two grams and then maybe another three to give them a total of five. But if it's a client that I've already worked with and we're just going for a deep dive, um, I would do four, then another two. So it's like you deepen a little bit and go further. And then I tend to, if they repeat and come back, you know, however much in the future, I tend to up it about a gram each time. My hope is to get them into about a seven in intensity. I have a scale of one to 10. I want them to stretch and get a lot out of this day. It's okay for it to be a good workout. But I don't want them to overextend and get outside of the window of tolerance. So I don't want to shoot them to an eight or nine in intensity. I also don't want to underwhelm them. I want to get them a lot. Since it's a one-to-one session, not a group ceremony, I'm there with them in cold, cold a lot. If it's a group ceremony, I try to get people to like a five. Because, you know, we have to take care of the whole group container. And it's not a place where people's huge trauma can erupt in, in a group container. But in the one-to-one, there's a lot of space for the person's experience. So it's okay to go to a little bit higher. Yahan. We're talking about psilocybin right now. We're pretty much focusing on it. Is it for everybody or are there people who shouldn't be taking it? And if there are people who shouldn't be taking it, I want to talk to you about vetting. 
you know, just like everything in life, uh, context is important. And so anything I could say taken out of context will not be good. And so I do think it's for everybody, but not at any given moment, right? If somebody's in a very destabilized place in their life, even a regular person might go through a very strong, depressive, suicidal episode or whatever it is, you know, they might go through a, a divorce the next day, it might not be the best day to take it. So we want the person to come in feeling somewhat grounded and somewhat resourced and have a good support system. I do think there are birthrights, you know, a deep part of my dissertation work and in my book, The Psilocybin Connection that came out, makes a really strong argument that we evolved because of the relationship with psilocybin mushrooms and psychedelics. It's the best theory of human evolution I've ever come across in 20 years of academia. And so in that case, who are we to say it's not? It's our connection to divinity, our sense of healing. You know, as Stanislav Grof, the great psychedelic pioneer, says, psychedelics catalyze what he calls holotropic states of consciousness, states that organically self-organize into wholeness. So from this lens, it helps everybody become more whole. That being said, there's a particular, couple particular populations I wouldn't work with right now, and that's because we don't have the infrastructure for them. And so it'd be hard to work with, you know, for example, borderline and schizophrenia. That being because there are systems and character strategies and way that they evolve that can be very destabilizing. They can go through strong manic episodes. The schizophrenic doesn't necessarily know it's real. The borderline has a lot of attachment wounds. And as one of my um, mentors says, they're, they're most likely to sue. I think his name is Leo Zach in the book, um, The Secret Chief Revealed, you know, one of the first psychedelic psychotherapists. He talks about how he had been burned by a few borderline clients. Right. So it's an attachment wound. They attach to you even as a therapist. And if they ever feel rejected, they want to turn around and hurt you. So you have a good book, I think, called I I Hate You, Please Don't Leave Me. And so that's a lot for a therapist as a whole. You need a special skill set. So these two populations I talked about, schizophrenia and borderline, they deserve help. These medicines will probably help them, but you need like a facility. You need like a care team, like an infrastructure, a clinic they can stay at for maybe a week or two. And people that can follow up in our society doesn't have that infrastructure yet. The hope being, and I'm pretty sure it'll happen in the next few years as we move towards legalization, as psychedelic clinics probably integrate into every city because they're that effective, um, there will be specialists to work with this population. Yahan, are you aware of any movement on to create a national manual that guides can use for vetting people and it would be a standard manual and my everybody around the country who's applying to be a client in a psychedelic session would respond to the same questions is there anything like that in your awareness going on or is there a need for that there is a need for that i'm glad you brought that up i am Looking up the name of the individual really quickly that is putting that together. She's an incredible lady working out of Oregon who started that, one of the first. Is that Lisa Ginsburg? Well done. Well done. You know, she started one of the first uh, psilocybin trainings uh, working on a legal like platform and just graduated the first legal psilocybin practitioners in the U.S. And she's creating a textbook to create that standard for all guides and trainings and definitely also reached out. Hopefully, I'll be writing a chapter with it soon. And that's a necessity to have a set of standard protocols, information database that we're all working from. When I got into this, you know, I only knew of one large training underground. Francois Borzak and Alharon, they've been doing this for 30 years. 
And then my school, CIS, California Institute of Integral Studies, started creating the first above ground certification program. Over the last few years and the last, especially the last year or two, I think about here, I've been new training every week. So there was years where there was just like two trainings and now it's an accelerating pace. A lot of these people holding trainings barely have experience. Since psychedelics have been illegal, a lot of the people that are teaching don't have much experience themselves, right? And so we're at a new place where we're trying to find safety standards and set up protocols that give a sense of legitimacy and equality throughout uh, the field. You know, it's different if somebody takes a one-month training versus a two-year training. Different skill set, but to the public, they're both going to look like they're certified by some organization. So it'd be helpful to have some level of standards if you're going to call yourself a psychedelic guide or a therapist. The, uh, the institute up in Oregon that you're talking about that you referenced is the Changa Institute, isn't it? You're beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really fan up here. Yeah. I, I imagine you and uh, the founder, Lisa Ginsburg, will be doing some work together. She and I are working together. Actually, I sit on the board now of the Changa Institute. That's amazing. And- yeah, and I think it's uh, a really wonderful things that they're doing. All of you listening can just go to Changa Institute on the Google, and you'll be there in a couple of seconds. Let's talk about adverse effects. It's important that the public knows about adverse effects. It's important that the public realizes these are not, quote, side effects, because side effects are words that have been used by the pharmaceutical companies to minimize the unwanted complications of medicine. That's what I call them. Uh, And so they sanitize unwanted complications by calling them side effects as if they just sort of happen on your side, but they don't. They happen to your entire system and to your entire being. Those of us in the psychedelic community have a transparency model that we use We want our patients and clients to know everything, so they're going to know in advance about the possibility of unwanted complications, sometimes referred to as adverse effects. What have you seen that you can share with us, Yahan? Thanks for asking. And, you know, just to share to the audience from where I'm pulling from, you know, I've held over 500 ceremonies at this point, and I've had well over a thousand journeys myself. You know, even if I'm looking at the term guide, it's somebody that goes through the territory first to find the pitfalls and also finds the fastest routes of of ways to move forward and, you know, and best ways to heal and grow. And so I've done a lot of self-experimentation with different substances. So I've seen uh, some of these adverse effects in my own life and I've seen them come up in client work. And and also, you know, as a side note, anything that we call an adverse effect looking at most of the time is just like every moment in life is an opportunity to learn. That being said, sometimes it could be painful and sometimes scary. And that's why we need a pretty good high standard of people holding space because some pretty extreme things can come up that may be out of the person's, the, the guide or therapist's awareness. And so several come to mind. You know, one that's a little maybe could be more obvious, but is really important is the resurfacing of unconscious trauma. You know, out of these 500 uh, ceremonies, there has been about seven times where during the first session, you know, get person psilocybin and memories of early sexual violation come up. And the range of these people that I've worked with could be from 20 to 70, right? And so they lived a really pretty big life already. 
and to all of a sudden have a memory of a family member, close family friend molesting them at a young age could be very destabilizing. You know, and of course the question is, is this even real? Did I just see something? Now I've known most of these people for a few years, you know, and it makes a lot of their life make sense. Uh, often when something like this happens and the psyche dissociates at an early age, and this kind of repression happens because it's too much for the child to sit with. I'm in a relationship with my dad or a neighbor or an uncle, and this happened, right? It's too much for the child system. The best strategy is for the child to pretend it didn't happen. It doesn't know how to hold the complexity. As adults, we barely do, right? Do I get angry at dad? Do I tell my parents, was this wrong? Am I wrong? Am I dirty? Am I bad? It's just so confusing that it gets repressed and there's like a knot or tangle um, at a really young age within the system. And then a lot of the personality develops on top of it. And so a lot of these people later fell into addictions, like heavy addictions, um, or they have a hard time with intimacy or trust, or their self-esteem was damaged. Sometimes they become overly sexual, move into sex work, for example. Sometimes they get sexually shut down, right? So there are things that greatly affect their lives unconsciously. And to suddenly have that something so big come up is it, hard for them to integrate. But what I've seen um, in each of these people, it's greatly healed their lives. And so a couple of these people came in primarily for addiction. They were drinking every day and couldn't stop for five years or more. They just couldn't stop drinking a lot of alcohol. And alcohol blacks you out, it numbs you out. Right? And so I give them the medicine and they move in this kind of what felt like horrific emotional trauma where they're almost in agony for five or seven hours, right? I, this like deep, deep pain that was repressed comes up to the surface and you can see in their eyes and they're aside from bawling. It's just like you could tell the emotional state you're in is like, that's like a level nine or 10 of pain um, that was just being stored in their system. And these two individuals specifically that I'm thinking about completely let go of the addiction in a day, right? And so even as Gapper Martin notes, who's in a lot of work on addiction, there's a one-to-one correlation between childhood trauma and addiction, right? And so this underlying thing, and these, these people, both of these people that I'm thinking about this, that drank and stopped in a day had done 20 years of therapy, but it was so embedded in the subconscious unconscious, they didn't have access to this. And there's Phillips Adam worked so much in the somatic and deep level, reorganizes you from the inside that it gave the freedom for these experiences to come up. And it's the container that could be held. I'm here to work with them and how to continue to work with them. You know, um, I've seen their lives dramatically change. Those are a couple good examples of people that I saw overnight have drastic changes that were very painful and hard to hold but left to a completely different life path moving forward. Have you seen situations where the adverse effects of the surfacing of an old trauma lasts for months or even longer and takes them a very long time to work it through? Or in all of your cases, have people worked it through rather rapidly? You know, the people that the memory arose during the session because they also had me to work with it's all actually, it's turned out for the better, but of course it's something that they're digesting for months or sometimes years. You know, I, two people come to mind now, two different people where the response to the memory was, no, no, I don't want this to be true. I don't want this to be true. Right. All of a sudden they're having an experience where their father had molested them, you know, and they've lived an entire lifetime and they don't want to see their father this way. Right. It's just, it's, it's an awful experience to have that somebody that you love that also took care of you, that you're very fond of also did this to you. 
and that yeah. has affected you, right? So it's very painful and strange. It's something that they're going to be processing for years. It could be for years, yes. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure, for years. It's a very small percentage. You're talking about seven cases in over 500 cases. So it's a a very small percentage of this uh, trauma, resurfacing trauma, uh, leading to uh, serious uh, unwanted complications or adverse effects. So, yeah, yeah, so I'm talking, I mean, it's incredible to see, and they do stand out, you know, even though it might be one or 2%. Yes, of course. It was, I'm talking about the cases that were pretty extreme, actually, because yes. their life had been very disjointed because of this trauma. That being said, I think it's good to share a case where this didn't work. You know, it was one that was very close to my heart. And in this situation, the woman's trauma surfaced before taking psychedelics. And that's why they came to me. You know, she had lived a very amazing life all the way up to late 20s, early 30s. Um, the husband was a medical doctor. They're very wealthy, very well off. And when her kids started to become the age that she got raped because she repressed it, it happened with a family friend, then all her trauma started to come up when her child became close to that age. And she came highly dysregulated. And this picture-perfect kind of family fell apart, and she started getting blackout drunk every day. And they were in extreme pain um, They because they had the wealth that went to medical doctors all around the world that focus on addiction, and they couldn't cure her. And they found me, and we started doing journeys. Um, and it seemed hopeful at first because with the help with the medicine, we could relive the trauma, and she could process it, and she could talk about it in a way without getting triggered. And it was amazing. And then she'd be good for about a week or two. And then something stressful would happen, and it'd be outside her window intolerance, and she'd go back to the alcohol. And they come back to me and she'd be good for a while. And this happened several times. And they stayed in close communication with me every few days. And so I became really embedded. I'm like, I want their family on the work. It got so bad, they were on the edge of getting a divorce because she'd be getting blackout drunk with the children there. Um, and it was a sad case where as much as we did the medicine, she couldn't break through. You know, And they went to other addiction centers and they couldn't help her. They eventually got a divorce. Now, a few years later, they still keep in contact with me. She's gotten better. You know, so this is to say partly that psychedelics haven't been effective for 100% of the people. You know, I've seen them highly effective, about 90%. Clinical studies say 80% with treatment-resistant depression. But the hardest part of my work, actually, out of all these cases, has been dealing with people's expectations. When people are in deep pain and deep suffering, they want an out. They've tried everything out. They're like, this has to work. Or they're highly suicidal, like, this has to work. It's my last stand. And it may not. And then you're having to sit there with the immense amount of pain of something must be so fucked up with me that this doesn't work. And so that's actually the most painful part for me is, is the expectations of, of, because for them, everything is on the line. And even then, this might not be helpful for some of them. I'll tell you an interesting experience from my own life on this, which is uh, I had a, a sexual experience when I was uh, about four years old, four and a half, actually. The physical aspect of the sexual experience, which went on over a period of time with a babysitter, an older babysitter, the physical experience was not only not traumatic, it was lovely. It was fun and it was exciting. However, since the babysitter was very careful to tell me not to ever tell anyone, I felt like I had done something wrong or bad. 
So although I wasn't traumatized in the sense of being, quote, raped or taken, I was psychologically traumatized by believing I had done something very wrong. And I'm more of a sensitizer than a repressor. As you pointed out, some people push these negative experiences away. They can't face them, put them in a little compartment and lock it. And then maybe years later, as you point out, they get resurfaced. In my case, I'm a sensitizer. So I lived with the experience. <laughs> and I lived with the good and the bad. I lived with how delightful the experience was, but I lived like feeling like I, I was a bad person. Fortunately, I got into therapy in my freshman year of college uh, when I was 16, and I worked on a great deal of it. But what has come into my consciousness just in the last year, we're talking now over 80 years later, is that I still have fragments of a feeling inside that I'm doing something wrong or bad. And I'm still working out those little fragments. It's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So it did not put a negative on my sexual behavior. I love sex. I've enjoyed it. I have been fine with it. But in terms of this feeling of maybe I've done something wrong and bad in society's views, you know, there's that little tiny bit, and I keep working it through. I may be working it through for the rest of my life. So it shows you, again, the impact of these early experiences, and that's why I'm sharing the story, because they have so much power. Let's talk about some of the let's cases. Say, let's, let's say there, because like, I think it's so beautiful and important, and out of everybody I work with, the sexual trauma has been the deepest trauma I've seen. You know, so I really appreciate your vulnerability. And this is because I see us generally first and foremost as sexual beings. We're created out of sexual energy. Sexuality runs through all of nature. It's a deep part of our soul and our wholeness, our vitality, our creativity, our sense yes. of self-power. And so when that's twisted, especially at a young age, it distorts our sense of self and our confidence and our security in who and what we are. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that case in my client work where something happened with the babysitter or they were the babysitter did something with somebody else with another kid and we're so sexually curious even as children again we come out as sexual beings and i think that's what causes the trauma is what you shared is the shame on society that we have around sexuality that everything that happened was actually okay and then we have to hide it and then it forms in our identity we did something wrong and then that shame is the corrosive part yes sometimes it's straight out abuse you know i i've seen that but a lot of times it had been some kind of innocent exploration between innocent kids sometimes the one kid is a few years older or not but it, i've seen the reinterpretation of it actually cause a lot of mental and emotional pain you know so it, it is a societal wound that we have around sexuality repressing it and shaming it that later causes level of, of pain and shame for so many of us later yes and that trauma of feeling like i did something wrong has interfaced with my over 50-year experimentation with psychedelics. I started doing research on psychedelics in 1966. However, it also triggered, my research in psychedelics triggered that trauma of having done something wrong because psychedelics have been illegal. So once again, I felt like I was doing something wrong 
by being a researcher in an area of endeavor which is illegal. And I've had to deal with that. And that's been an unwanted complication of psychedelics for me, which is that triggering that feeling again of doing something wrong or illegal or bad. It's very, very interesting at a very personal level. You mentioned that some of your cases you've seen from uh, psychedelic journeys, you've seen impaired judgment. Talk to us about impaired Mm -hmm. judgment, Yahan. These are two of the more extreme cases um, that I've had out of all these journeys, but I think they're good for guys and therapists to know as a possibility. Um, one was our first retreat out there uh, working with Otman in Jamaica. And um, this client uh, was having a very beautiful, amazing experience, you know, where he felt very divine and powerful, but also feeling powerful like the whole. Like, I could do anything. And so he is very excited. Like, yes, 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 yes. And then out of his excitement, he starts hitting his head against the wall. Like, yeah, right. And again, like I can accomplish anything at deepest sense of self-empowerment. And, you know, some of the time we're working out there on the beach on this little private resort. And he gets this experience where he was like, he sees a small island, maybe, I don't know, two miles away in the water. And he's like, I'm going to swim to that island. Right. So again, in his state of euphoria, megalomaniacish, but the sense of deep empowerment could be, which could be very healing, right? For somebody that's felt repressed and not enough to have six hours where I can do anything later when that's integrated, it could be a very big deal for them in their career, their lack, their confidence and security. Right. But during this container where they're really feeling that in a highway and not having the full sense of discernment, because it seems so real. I had to physically hold him down for two hours, literally wrestle him down for two hours um, while he's in a very excited, happy state. So it's not like he's fighting and wrestling. He's kind of trying to get a way to jump into the water. Yes. But this is a very, you know, a circumstance where something could go wrong very easily. You know, jumps in the water. I mean, how far could he possibly get? He's not an end swim two miles right there. Um. It, it could get dangerous very fast for him, for us, for the whole project. I mean, it, it could get pretty bad. And so in this case, it, I mean, thank God I'm, I'm a bigger stature than him. I've done some wrestling. I could hold him down. I mean, it'd be a situation where somebody with a different body type or not the inclination to physically restrain him because he wasn't open to any kind of reason would have been able to do it. So, you know, in talking with him later, what his experience partly was, was he was trying to walk into a higher order of reality. And we were some aliens telling him he's not ready yet. And he was fighting. That's his aliens telling him he's not ready to walk into this higher order of reality. He's having this experience. I'm physically trying to keep his body alive, you know, and he's not open to that interpretation while he's high. And so it was intense. It was intense and it came out very well and we've integrated and it's been amazing. Um, But it's something that in the flip of a switch could have gone very awry possibly fatal another one was working with a client who well one second please please thank you this case that you're talking about now certainly points to the importance certainly in early stages of experimentation of having a guide and not doing do i 
I wanted to talk to you about later on about DIY, do it yourself. But this gentleman obviously should not have been a DIY person because if he was, he might have gone out into that water. And that most likely as a swimmer, I can tell you, he was not going to go for a swim for two miles. That would be very unusual. Very unusual. No, thank you. Absolutely. And you definitely I'll return the DIY. And because I've experienced so much, I, I can no longer recommend it, especially with, you know, even higher, somewhat higher doses. Another sure. Place that really comes I mean, from- after one gets used to, let's say one has had a certain amount of experience with guides at low doses and at high doses, there may be room for many people to do it yourself because they've learned the skills. But in the early stages, it would be very mistaken. Don't you agree? I do. They're reorienting to a whole new way of reality, you know, and you do gain a, a better footing, just like you would with any art, craft, sport, you know, skill, um, the more you do it. So absolutely, it's, it's a completely unlike anything else on the planet, uh, learning to navigate those states of consciousness. And the other one that comes to mind in this case, this man was much larger than me, about 250 pounds, large level of muscle, you know, heavy lifting and had done uh, years of different kinds of martial arts. And so I came in just very humble. I'm a pretty strong guy. I'm like, this guy can take me on. There's no kidding around this should something happen. And he was also working with a deep level of anger and pain and had uh, some of this early sexual molestation come up. And so what happened in this case, and things were going really, really smooth. Um, and it'd been a second journey. We'd worked with a lot of the early childhood repressed trauma, which had been hugely insightful. It made so much of things of his sense, uh, his life make sense. During this other journey, he got into the state where you're merging kind of the personal, the divine, where his inner child, that was, you know, all this stuff happening was very present. So there's a child state of mind, say three to five years old, right? That's really present, this inner child, but it's merging with God and being a God one and thinking it's God. So this conflation, people can't find a place where they think they're God, which is well, partial truth, I believe, to this reality that we are all God. But it's being merged with the mindset of a child thinking it's God, right? And it got very strange. Um, he started throwing a lot of tantrums and things across the room in a fit, except you're, it's a three-year-old throwing a fit in a very large, strong body and getting really angry I mean, it looked like he could tear the room apart. And what he wanted, because he's like, and he's saying, since I'm God, I can do anything I want. Let's go get a pizza right now. It's very hungry. He's a child. He's wanting to eat. And for him, it seems innocent. And it makes sense. If I'm God, why can't we just go get a pizza? He's really high and it's dangerous outside. He can get hit by a car. You could see somebody could run away. I mean, this is, it's not, he's, you know, the rules, there's, there's three rules. Uh, I tell people, don't hurt yourself, me or the environment. Don't leave the space. You're under my responsibility and I'm not going to touch you sexually. Those are the three rules. Repeat them every time. I can't let somebody leave. You know, it, they're under my care. They're, they're in a very altered state. And it got scary for 20, 25 minutes. You know, he, he'd sit down, lay down. He'd listen to me that we're not leaving. Then he'd throw a tantrum, get up, get really angry and frustrated. I'd be able to talk him down. We went through like seven iterations of this. And it felt like I'm on the line. Like this guy could break out at any moment. It happened. Again, I've had a lot of different skill sets I've trained in. I've done enough work there. I managed eventually to get him to lay down and go back into the journey. 
after a very long while of deep intensity, somebody else, and again, he's a very more aggressive person. If you challenged him or pushed back aggressively, he would have challenged you even more aggressively. Right. Yes. And so, yes. Right. And so, so it was a very it kind of really had a finesse in the situation. It was a time much, for a, a keto. A keto. I was thinking a keto <laughs> also. Or say you were a smaller female, you probably would have been scared. This is yes. a very large man that's very aggressive. Yeah. And so this is just point to show us just even where body types come in, skill sets, because it could have gotten drastic bad. You know, he was getting angry at everything. If you set him off, he could have come at you. You know, yeah. Yeah. Do you happen to recall what dose he took? He was at five grams. Five grams? Yeah, yeah. Do you find the dose is related to body weight? I do. I do. I have found it's related to body weight. It is also related to genders. Women tend to be more sensitive. In this case, it also has to do with your level of sensitivity and depth of trauma. You know, somebody has a lot of trauma ready to erupt. It might explode. It's like there's been a buildup of pressure in the system. And each experience is a little different because his prior experience was nothing like this. I would say there's, there's anomalies, you know, just as like psychedelics themselves are kind of an anomaly. They don't fit into our current paradigm, you know, really yes. make us rethink what's possible. And I've seen such a spectrum of unbelievable experiences arise, you know, and this is a case where none of us expected this. And yet this is what's happening. You know, so far, what we've been talking about, resurfacing trauma, impaired judgment, happened in an extremely small, though important, percentage of the cases. Totally. Now, nausea and vomiting happen in a higher percentage of the cases. Still not very high. I'm interested in your opinion on how high. But let's talk some about nausea and vomiting and how you deal with it. You know, I'd say with psilocybin in particular, about one in 12 people throw up, you know, I mean, so. 8%. Yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. So you get, I mean, just really used to taking people to the bathroom, holding their hair and they're vomiting. And for them, it's a harder experience in the sense that a lot of them might have shame come up around it. You know, it's not something they normally do with a stranger. So that's pretty common. You know, I'm so sorry I'm throwing up. I can't believe you're seeing me like this. And, but Shame can heal in a relationship. And so it could be meaningful, like you're there for them even in that moment. It could be a very beautiful healing experience. Um, in terms of nausea, you know, maybe one in five. And there's 20%. We, 20%. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And, and so there's things that we do to try to mitigate it, like, you know, don't eat the day of or at least four hours before. You know, if you have a lot of food in your stomach, more likely to get nauseous. If some people, the nausea is more extreme. You know, there's somebody that's come in several times where, He's nauseated for like three hours or more. He gets so much from the experience, but it's really hard on his body. He's a smaller man. Like he's going to, he just go through a lot of pain and nausea. So sometimes for some small people, the nausea can last for a couple hours. Some of us for a few minutes and some of us never really get it. Now, some people are taking the mushrooms, the psilocybin mushrooms and putting them in lemon juice for five or 10 minutes before ingestion, because there's a theory, but I don't know if there's science behind it, that the lemon juice changes the psilocybin into psilocin, which the stomach does. So it's sort of doing a pre-ingestion, and that's helping to bypass 
the nausea and vomiting. Have Are you familiar with that? And what could you tell us if you are? No, definitely heard it. And it goes generally the name like lemon tech is the name people call it. And because there's not a lot of research or science, I haven't really looked into it too much. Um, what I okay. have generally done is I blend the mushrooms in water and honey. And so it turns into like in a smoothie. And so it's really broken down in the system. I started partly because a client was scared of nauseous and uh, did a lot of research. And he, he said breaking it down and blending it would be helpful. And actually, and that was my third client. And so I've kept it since, you know, and this way it's a quick drink with a little bit of sweetness in it. And the nausea hasn't been that big of a deal, but it is there. So when generally, like when people throw up, they feel better, you know, in ayahuasca circles, everybody gets their own bucket. So a lot of times when people throw up in an indigenous context, it's purging. So a lot of times it's related to some emotional, you know, yes. caught in their system, some energy. So they tend to feel some emotion, the nausea, they vomit, and they feel released as if they let go of something. They've actually purged um, some kind of energy that's stuck in their system. Yeah, but ayahuasca is an emetic, which makes you throw up, whereas psilocybin isn't inherently an emetic itself. It has, for some uh, people, an emetic uh, quality, but that's how you, how you deal with it. Uh, let's talk about anxiety and panic. Both during, you mentioned it anticipatory to the sessions, but I also am aware of cases where after the session, there's been an increase in anxiety and in some cases panic. And I've been told by some researchers that people who have had panic attacks have a higher percentage of cases where their anxiety after MDMA specifically increases and it can stay higher for weeks, if not longer. What is your research indicated? Yeah. I'm sure the, the, the worst cases that I have personally seen have, have actually been on me. You know, as I mentioned, I've done a lot of self-experimentation. It's my, I enjoy learning and exploring consciousness. It's a part of my personality structure. I have ADHD, so there's a drive for novelty in that regard. And out of all the journeys I've done, there's been two that had left long-lasting anxiety. Uh, there was one um, where I took two hits of LSD and some ketamine, substances I'm generally comfortable with, but I was alone in, in the house that I'd been renting. Um, what size dose of LSD, please? It's about 200 mics. 200 mics two, of LSD. 200 total? Yes, 200 mics total. Thank you. And some ketamine and... You know, looking back, I was going through a kind of stereotypical ego death experience where you think you're dying, you know, you kind of let go, you dissolve, and there's, you know, an awesome reward of rebirth. I've gone through many of these cycles, but when you're in this state, you can, what I found, you can kind of buy into whatever story. And in this case, for some reason, I got the idea that my ketamine might have fentanyl in it. Fentanyl had been a big scare at the time. And then... Because I was believing this for some reason, I started to think my physiologically what happened was my body got tight and I felt like my organs were shutting down. And then I got to the state where I couldn't really breathe for five hours, right? And under this panic mode, and I felt as if I let go of my presence, I would die. And so I was in this high level anxiety, like a blaring tent for about five hours. It's as if your body's in a war zone, in a war. It might get hit by a bullet for five hours. It caused a lot of trauma in my system, a lot of pain. 
And over the next two years, when I took psilocybin or OSD, I'd go back into the trauma state. It took a long time to wind this out of my system. And that's one of the reasons I I'd also don't, you know, kind of share this higher dose sometimes do it yourself. You know, I'm an experienced guy. I've had, you know, so many journeys. And here's one I did out of many that had big consequences on me. And I've met other guides to they've had hundreds of journeys where something similar has happened. So most of the time you'll be fine. And that's where the guide is helpful. A guide could have been there like, hey, you're actually okay. The ketamine is clean. A small thing, but this little, my mind got stuck on the small thing in this altered state. Fun out. I think I'm actually dying. And it caused actual trauma that took a, a while to recover from. Oh, yes. My first experience, I ingested 400 morning glory seeds because I'd read about it in the Tibetan Book of the Dead from Leary and Alpert. And I, when I started to go through the ego death experience, I started to think, Maybe there was some kind of pesticide in the morning glory seeds, and I'm really dying, and this is an ego death. And so there I was, you know. I, the good news was I let go. I let myself go and die, and then I came back, and then I had a nice chuckle about it. But I also had another interesting thing happen, which I'll convey to you, which, was a, which is a good story. I was on my back um, with my eyes closed. And I started to get scared. Again, this thing about doing something illegal. I got scared because I heard hammering and I thought the police were hammering on the door and they were going to come in and arrest us for taking these morning glory seeds. And I got really, really, really scared. And then finally, I had the sense because I was with a few friends, but we didn't know anything in 1966 about you know, a lot of stuff that to do to calm people down. But finally, I opened up my eyes and looked out the window. And there were two telephone linemen working on the lines. And they were hammering on the walls with hammers to put these lines into the wall. So that's what the hammering was about. Of course, then I laughed and had a good chuckle about it. But it was pretty scary. And the, what, was, what I shared with you was that concern with contamination. Because you mm -hmm. thought you had fentanyl or something. And, and that is something that's very unfortunate about the illegality of these substances is because people's minds can go in that direction of maybe what I got since it wasn't made professionally might have some contaminants in it. And we've got to deal with that. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about what you've seen regarding dependence an addiction with these substances? How much have you seen people get into it and get carried away with too much experimentation? You know, in this regard, again, I'm, I'm the best study I've seen on this. Um, when it comes to psilocybin, for example, before I go into that, I've yet to see anybody. Um, it's a high tolerance effect. People don't necessarily keep taking it every day and tripping. So in my 20 years of looking at this and all my research, I've yet to hear of anybody getting addicted to psilocybin, but it can also be scary and traumatic and so on. So there are definitely adverse effects. That being aside, um, I have gotten addicted to nitrous oxide and to ketamine, and they are both incredible psychedelic substances. Um, I've experienced deep, deep, deep healing from both of them. Um, but when I got addicted for nitrous, for example, I didn't know that 
it also hit opiate receptors. You know, and here I am not interested in opiates at all, and I'm physiologically addicted. And it was going through like more swing withdrawals. Um, and that happened several times. It's an incredible, I've had a deeper sense of wholeness in my being in terms of the positives, but huge shadows that have also come with it and learning how to navigate this relationship. Um, nitrous aside, cannabis, which is becoming so much more popular, you know, it being a schedule four substance has made it possible for it to come through many clinics in the psychotherapy, which is also now showing up in so many parties. I rarely go to a party and ketamine's out there. It's all over by name, man. Um, beautiful substance, great with depression, amazingly healing. Um, one way it has helped me is I felt a deep sense of unsafety my whole life out of, because of childhood trauma. I'd walk around the world as if somebody was going to stab me. And it felt like that all the way into like my mid-30s. My body felt unsafe. I entered this ketamine state over and over where everything would be completely white. And I'd move into fear. One day I entered in this white state. And I'm like, there's nothing here. Why am I scared? I realized I'm bringing in the fear. And I said, oh my God, I'm safe. I'm really safe. And this background anxiety that I'd been, I'd been looking at, been there every moment my whole life dissipated. So it's helped me. Downside is... I had fallen into addiction, and I've seen many people, including guides, fall into addiction with ketamine. Um, because it's short-acting, it's easier to keep doing. Uh, it can be very spiritual and intuitive. The downside is it can affect sleep. You know, it's hard to fall asleep about three hours after taking ketamine. You know, um, and so it's something I think we're wrestling a lot with right now in the psychedelic um, communities, in the guide communities, as we're giving it to clients. You know, some of the people that I would never think would be addicted to got addicted to it. Um, and so it's something that we're going to see more and more happening as we give it to the general population. You know, it is controlled in the sense of when people are getting lozenges sent to them, there's a certain amount of lozenges and they're doing teleimmunotherapy online. But a lot of them may try to go find sources of ketamine and start using it recreationally. It's not as bad as Oxycontin, right? That, you know, the pharmaceutical company had you know, given out, and I think 400,000 people have died from Oxycontin. It's not that extreme. Um, I believe there has been some ketamine deaths. High-level use of ketamine regularly um, can, I believe, call, cut the gall gallbladder, and you can start peeing blood. You have high-level use. But a lot of the damages from ketamine, what I've seen, um, are repairable. You know, that being said, the biggest downside to addiction I've seen, and it's something that similar you shared with your sexual experiences, is shame. There's a lot of shame that comes with addiction. And for myself, the shame has been much more corrosive than any addiction itself. You know, with addiction, you tend to hide it. You feel bad or something wrong with you. Um, we don't have a good lens collectively in our society of addiction, you know, and so you're judged for it. You know, there's a lot of things that come up and that sense of self-judgment and shame corrodes your self-esteem, you know, and your sense of self. So that's been more detrimental. So going in, um, a lot of the general psychedelics, peyote, uh, you know, psilocybin, LSD, 5-MeO-DMT, aren't way that addictive. I've seen some people go through some cycles of 5-MeO, some cycles of LSD, but it's pretty rare. You know, generally people use them to get out of addiction. They break patterns. They're pretty intense. You don't necessarily want an intense psilocybin experience every day. It's, it's a lot to deal with. The molecules that move generally towards a positive direction, it could be MDMA, people have gotten addicted, but ketamine is generally positive. You're not sitting there doing deep shadow work and it's uncomfortable and painful all the time. Those that move towards that level of excitement that keep hitting the dopamine, 
those we need to look at carefully. You know, it's a both and there's a shadow and a light, you know, so we, we never have to push them away because they're addictive, but we need to be conscious that they are addictive. In terms of mixing psychedelics for maximum psychotherapeutic effect, what are the combinations that your research has revealed to you as being the most effective? Yeah. So th there's about two different ones that I think are, would be great for the future as these for civilization are integrated into clinics. And first and foremost, on a word on what we call stacking, layering the psychedelics, you know, it, it took me a long time to get used to the idea. And I think it will for people, people that are newer to psychedelics, you know, they're like, one substance is enough. It's a lot. You're going to mix them. One, we have to see that these substances are generally pretty safe. You know, low biotoxicity, if any, they tend to move out of your system very quickly, right? So psilocybin, theoretically, you need a thousand doses to die. You know, it's, it's possible, but it's a rarely safe compound compared to most compounds on the whole planet. I think a good uh, protocol would be for starting with MDMA. MDMA, as I mentioned, produces peace, relaxation, safety, some wholeness, heart opening, non-judgment, helps you feel safe with the therapist, right? So it really grounds you of like, everything's okay. Looking at Maslow's hierarchy, it, it, it meets the first levels. Oh my God, I'm safe, I'm connected, I belonged, right? Awesome. And then when you give a psilocybin on top of that, say an hour and a half, two hours in, they can really surrender to the psilocybin because they're no longer scared. You know, they made like a truth serum. I'm like, I'm actually safe, I am love then they can really go into this journey, learn the most out of it. It is, it, I think it would be an incredible combination. And then there's two different ways to see the same protocol go. I think bringing in 5-MEO at around hour four or five can be incredible to deepen the experience. You know, 5-MEO has been called the God molecule. Um, people tend to put it as the apex experience. I think about seven to eight milligrams would be incredible um, to keep them surrendering. Again, for this person with the five and yoga combination, I think they need to be not their first journey, not their second, maybe their third, because five meal can also have a lot of trauma come up. So this is for somebody that's already worked through a good level of the trauma. It can also cause more nausea. You know, I think perhaps about um, one in five people, so that's uh, about 20% population get uh, nauseated with uh, five and meal. They're more likely to throw up. Another route this can go is MDMA, psilocybin, and towards the end, around us, ketamine. Ketamine is very soothing. It relaxes. For those that don't know, ketamine was created and it's an anesthetic for surgery to relax the body during surgery, right? And so think about bringing ketamine in around hour four, hour five. So this person at this time has processed a lot, done a lot of interpersonal work, done a lot of deep, perhaps spiritual work, moves through anger, shame, pain, trauma, maybe bliss, whatever. And it's exhausting. A psychedelic journey is very exhausting. And so at the tail end, you bring in something that smooths the system, that actually helps integrate their experience. It's like this pleasant breeze at the end. I think it's phenomenal. And I think all these medicines and these combinations layer way up really well together. Aaron, in your work and in researchers around the country during this recent renaissance, there's been a tremendous emphasis on psilocybin and of course the groundbreaking work that's that that kicked off in research the, the, the renaissance is the work of johns hopkins and that was with psilocybin 
with Roland Griffiths. And MAPS has been leading the way on MDMA. And going back to John Lilly and the fact that it didn't get scheduled, we have a lot of work going on with ketamine. But the granddaddy, LSD, is not getting a lot of press. It doesn't seem to be getting as much experimentation. Now, we know that one of the reasons is the stigma from the 60s because of all the bad rep, right? But from your research over a 20-year period, even though you have mostly focused on psilocybin, ketamine, MDMA, and now also bring in 5-MeO-DMT, can you share some of your thoughts, maybe on the politics of LSD, the treatment of it, what you see as its future? How does it fit into this whole psychotherapeutic and consciousness expansion scene? No, great question. And, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. Stigma is the huge issue. You know, I've heard Rick Doblin, who leads MAPS, say, you know, at the beginning when he wanted to make an effort towards legalization of psychedelics, he's like, we pretty much have a choice between psilocybin and MDMA. The stigma of the LSD is way too big to use that as something to start with, right? And so you're you're doing a very strong, necessary strategic political game. And psilocybin and MDMA have must-like baggage, you know? And then with MDMA, you can work with um, the veteran population, right? And so you get people that are more conservative on board. And it's been amazing front. There's pretty much no political division when it comes to psilocybin or MDMA um, around it. The Republicans want it. The Democrats want it. And it, it works. You know, Texas, for example, has been the first state to um, start sponsoring and give money towards uh, psilocybin research, right? So. Kentucky just passed, I think, you know, maybe $55 million, I think, towards um, Abigail research because of addictions. And so this is, it's amazingly well done. LSD would have probably been impossible to start with. My personal experience, LSD might be my favorite compound. You know, I had this deep, I've done many journeys where, you know, 500 mics. And I had this experience where all of a sudden this being came into my room, this incredible, again, it gave me a very, it's like, Sometimes you see the best CGI in the world. The world around you transforms and it looks very real, majestic. It's, you want to tear how beautiful it looks. And this being came to me and was holding the LSD molecule. And he was telling me, this is special. This that is not what you don't write this off. This is really important. If I'm looking at how psychedelics evolve, it's just a, a combination of different atoms configured specifically the tryptamines around the serotonin compound, right? And so there's a few atoms difference between um, psilocybin and LSD. That combination makes LSD about three times longer, you know, in terms of it's about 12 hours and it's uh, much stronger in terms of dosage. These combinations could have evolved in a different ecosystem on a different planet. So to say, hey, they're not natural, it just has to do with the ecosystem they evolved in. And with LSD, we know... Um, we derived it from ergot, which is a fungus, you know, and when you zoom into ergot, it looks like a whole bunch of little mushrooms. You know, the background, people may not know, good work by um, Brian Morescu and his bestseller, now Religion with No Name. Amazing scholarship showing that it was probably ergot, so LSD-like substance they used in the the Eleusinian mysteries in Greece that went on for like a thousand years. They drank this root called kaikion that probably had LSD in it. And this really influenced the birthing of Western civilization, right? So it's a very important compound. 
the work of Stanislav Graf, you know, the pioneer of LST research really in many ways that really brought forward transpersonal psychology, worked with over 50,000 people, really goes to show the effectiveness of LST. You know, as Michael Pollan points out in his book, um, How to Change Your Mind, I believe there's 1,500 research papers, scientifically uh, researched, um, that wrote the efficacy, importance, and safety of LST by 1965, 1,500. And all that was overlooked, you know, just because the public did not have awareness around it. The government was against psychedelic use. The people that took LSD went against the Vietnam War. You know, they all of a sudden people are fighting for sexual rights, for equality when it comes to racial and social social status. But you also had the emergence because of LSD of all the arts, you know, whether come rock, you know, technological music. In the book, What the Dormouse Had on great book that starts doing, looking at the research between LSD research centers in Silicon Valley and the emergence of the computer revolution. So there's three LSD research sites in Silicon Valley during the 50s and 60s. And Dung Eaglebart, she pretty much created the computer mouse, the network computer system, the graphic interface, the foundation for the modern computer was using LSD in these research centers, right? So as we know now, you know, somebody like Tim Ferriss would say every billionaire CEO I know in Silicon Valley uses psychedelics. And so a lot of these people that really brought forward the computer revolution that really changed the world, including, you know, the formation of the internet, were using psychedelics. You know, they pretty much, their thoughts and novelty generators really expand consciousness. What consciousness expands, so does everything else. So I think the integration of LSD um, will be incredible. The downside, I love it, barely use it because it lasts 12 hours. You need the right container. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot, it's a lot for a, uh, uh, a guide most guides to hold for 12 hours right and what i've seen when people do guided lsd work many times the subject the client itself gets they get tired you know a psilocybin experience of two rounds you go six hours so and they're exhausted at six hours so when you do a 12-hour journey most people are exhausted at six or seven hours you're like wow we went through a lot i wanted to end i'm exhausted and you're like well this is an ending like you're you're in for it most of us can't sleep for 12 hours you know so it's a very powerful compound. It's very beautiful, biologically safe. It could be traumatic emotionally if not done well, but it needs the right container. You know, a 12-hour container is, is quite a strong thing to hold. Would you say the same thing about ayahuasca because of the length of the journey? It's a lengthy, much lengthier journey. It's sort, of in, yeah. it's, it's sort of in between psilocybin and LSD in terms of number of hours. And these are important issues. We're not going into these issues as in depth as we did with adverse effects, but they are important from a practical point of view, because if you're going to have a guide and you're paying, there's a difference between paying for 12 hours and six hours. In addition to the exhaustion factor, which you point out, which is so important, the benefits are great, but 12 hours is a very long time. Uh, to be on one medicine and have one experience for sure. But then there's the consideration of who can afford to pay a guide for such a lengthy experience. So I think some of our research friends, such as uh, Nick Cozy and Paul Daly at ASRI, the Alexander Children Research Institute, are working on novel compounds to see if they can come up with an LSD, perhaps that lasts five or six hours, and, and make those of us who are practitioners uh, have a workspace that's more realistic. Yeah. Hope it happens. So from your own personal experience now, 
not other people's, but yours. What are one or two or three things that you have most benefited from your psychedelic experiences? There's nothing in my life that hasn't benefited from my psychedelics. I mean, that's a, a very honest statement. You your know, entire what I've life, often, everything has benefited. Entire, oh, completely, 100%. Yeah, because I've changed, and therefore the way I interact with the world changes, right? As my consciousness changes, that's what's interacting with everything and everybody. That's what's making decisions, feelings. That's what's navigating life and setting plans. Everything has changed. Um, what I see at the core of the transformation process, exactly, really kind of boil it down with clients and myself, is a shift in identity. Um, you see this in large level developmental models of personality, whether it's Ken Wilber's work, Maslow's work, Robert Keegan's work that study the way the personality matures and develops, you know, we can keep growing, is the way I see myself and also the paradigm, the way I see the world and they're intertwined, the way I see myself in the world. In psychedelics, for example, you can have this experience of animism that the whole world is alive and interconnected and uh, spiritually unified. And it's very deeply healing and changes everything. And the way you see yourself change, I mean, the deepest identity shift I have to change that I try to help people get to is I am love, right? I think it's our deepest truth. You know, even when you say we are God, God's love with a voice, right? So when you say I am love, it heals all these fractured parts of us of I'm not enough, I have shame. The way you integrate all these dissociated parts is by bringing love to them and they integrate it. You know, at the depth, I feel we are love and light and an eternal soul. And so we're trying to ground this person in this deeper identity that's even more foundational than their biography, than their name. And so as that shifts inside of me, your confidence shifts, your safety shifts. You know, before my psychedelic experience as 18, I was suicidal, depressed, and an atheist. And that leads you to feel shame and disconnected. You, what kind of potential do you have? Your self-esteem is low. You're feeling alone and not supported. That shift in psychedelics that we live in a spiritual reality and shift in what I see myself in the potential, just that one journey gave me the strength and foresight. You know, just a, a couple months after that at 18, it was like, I'm going to go get my doctor's. You know, I was 18 and I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. And I went and got my doctor's in consciousness, right? And so it shifted the complete course of my life, what I did for the next 20 years. It's changed my profession. It's changed if love is real and important and also knowing what is mushrooms told me at 18, love is the most important thing in the universe. Miles after that is learning and everything else is so insignificant compared to these values. You don't have to worry about the complexity of anything else. So I've aligned my life with that. I went to school, learned, right? But when love is important, that means other people are important. Relationships are important. I don't get caught up in all the other stuff. So relationships became my highest value. People became my highest value, right? And so I'm very clear of my value system and the way I live my life and how I connect with others. Integrity and ethics are really important, you know? So it's pretty much affected all my relationships. Health comes up a lot. My health, creating a good life, a meaningful life, being if. Even Maslow, you know, with levels development, people tend to see self-actualization at the top. But the last 10 years of his life, he worked on another stage called transcendence. And the essence of transcendence was being of service and of purpose. If you really are one with everything, and that is our ultimate truth when, it's, when it comes to an identity, and that's what love is, it's the expression of unity, then what comes the most value of meaning is of, of being a service. You are everything else in a sense, right? That's where the most meaning comes before you die is, is how did you affect the world, leave more love, alleviate pain, have blasting impact, right? And so it's shifted that. So 
You know, there isn't an inch of my life that hasn't changed because of psychedelics. Last question for our interview, Johan. What do you love most and what do you dislike most about being a guide? You know, I'll start with what I love most and we'll see what happens with what I dislike. The most personal, meaningful experience I had been healing that I had 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 been experiencing the existence of God. You know, for some reason, it was really important to me. I was an atheist before that. And so knowing that there's this unity of divine intelligence that is the cosmos that's intimately connected, the experience was that there is a seer behind our eyes and listener behind our ears who is everywhere. It's inside of every being. It's like in the Hindu tradition of Brahman, there's one being having a dream and each one of them were Atma, right? And this is a being you can have a relationship with. It's creating every moment of reality. It's in you, it's in me, it's listening, right? And that was the most healing thing that's ever happened. It's changed the way I orient towards reality. It's given me trust in life and evolution and the cosmos, right? And so because that was so big for me, I wanted, under personal reasons, to be there and create a space for people to have that same breakthrough and see that moment. And so when you see these experiences of people having mystical experiences where they're depressed for 10 or 20 years because their sense of identity is so shot down because of parent society life where they feel the worthless, like nothing, they want to die. And sometimes within hours, it, the personality cracks and they see that they are lights. And sometimes a voice arouses that they are God and they're connected with everything. And it's, it's a given inside of this truth. It's just your whole being knows it. It's incredible to see. It's like seeing a caterpillar all of a sudden going to cocoon and then all of a sudden start to crack through and emerge as a butterfly. And it's happening right in front of you, right? Imagine seeing a butterfly come out of the cocoon and it looks glorious. It's a whole new life being born. And to be seeing that over and over in front of your eyes, it's like some, seeing some of the best art in like grace take place. That has been incredibly fulfilling um, to see these moments of deep healing and then following up seeing the, the, the change in these people's trajectory. The hardest part I had mentioned is dealing with disappointment. It doesn't happen often. It's, it's on the low scale, but it's very painful and hard where somebody comes in and they're like, this is my last straw. This has to work. And then there's some people you can give them almost any amount of psychedelics and they don't respond. You know, I've given up to 20 grams to people and they don't respond. Um, whether their receptor sites aren't active, they, their egos are so dense with OCD, um, you know, they're blocking it. You know, they've been unnecessarized too long. For some reason, some people don't respond to psychedelic. And to sit there for six hours and then being upset why it's not working for them is hard. I'd rather help them through their trauma than like, regardless of what it is, of them being upset and disappointed and go through the shame and despair. And you're sitting there having to hold that of something's not working. So what keeps me going is that the statistics are that this will work. But there's a portion of people that it's not going to work for. And that's a very painful experience to be sitting through for everybody. Thank you. And thank you so much for being together with me today. Oh, it's an honor. I love talking to you. I love listening to you. I love learning from you. It's mutual. Great work. Michael. To be continued. We'll do another one sometime in the near future. Thank you so much again. And thank you, dear listeners, for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you that we broadcast every Tuesday at 9 o'clock. You can listen to the latest program, or you can go to our archives, and we have 20 years of archives, which are open source, which means no fee to you. 
All this information is available to all of you with love. Look forward to seeing you all again. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.